This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Cadam. We've been told that this originated in an open seafood market where you've got a market that you've got bats and cats and pigs and, and all sorts of animals all at once, but there is also speculation that perhaps it did not originate there. Today we look at the COVID-19 lab leak theory. Let's get you caught up. Tell us what you know. Yeah, so Maria, here's what we do know. It, this virus did not originate in the Wuhan animal market. Epidemiologists... This is sort of where it started. You're hearing Republican Senator Tom Cotton on Fox News in February 2020. The virus went into that food market before it came out of that food market. So we don't know where it originated, but we do know that we have to get to the bottom of that. We also know that just a few miles away from that food market is China's only biosafety level four super laboratory that researches human infectious diseases. Now, Cotton was wrong to say definitively that we know the virus did not originate from the market. But he was right to draw attention to the lab and to later point out that the Chinese government hadn't been exactly forthright about what was going on there. But it's important to point out, Cotton is a serious China hawk. Actually, he's kind of unhinged. He advocates a Cold War-like struggle against the CCP. So he was definitely not the best messenger for the lab leak theory. His remarks were immediately condemned by the New York Times and others as just a fringe conspiracy movement. If scientists did design this virus, they made an unexplainably dumb choice in putting it together. Like Wendy Zuckerman of the award-winning Science Versus podcast, they make pretty clear that when you investigate the virus's genetic makeup, it just doesn't look like a well-made killing machine. And let me tell you, this one, it ain't it. Producer Rose Rimler talked to Christian about it. It's very easy to know how to make that in the perfect way, and this is made in a very imperfect, almost seemingly random way. If you were an evil scientist training minions of evil scientists, what grade would you give them? (laughs) So not a good grade. So Science Versus embraces the zoonotic transmission theory, as most people seem to do. There's just one problem with this whole argument. It was basically a straw man. It's true that some corners of the internet thought that it might be a weapon, but the more sober analysts focused a lot more on biosafety than biological warfare. Still, in that climate, this is how the theory was read. Conspiratorial lunacy. Twitter and Facebook developed misinformation policies to censor lab leak proponents, and major fact-checking organizations corrected them. (laughs) 
why did the mainstream media take this reading? Well, it's not just that some of the lab leak people didn't seem all that trustworthy. It's also that the scientists did. Because the best and brightest confidently proclaimed their new scientific consensus. Or at least, that's how this was read. Mostly because of the work of one scientist, Peter Daszak. Our research shows that there are probably hundreds of thousands of new viruses in wild species around the planet. This is a biodiversity issue. Daszak is a zoologist and president of the not-for-profit EcoHealth Alliance. This video is from about five years ago. EcoHealth Alliance is working on the ground to stand between you and the next pandemic. From our offices here in New York, we send our staff all over the world. Daszak coordinated with 26 other scientists to publish a landmark letter in The Lancet. The letter condemned the lab leak theory. However, Daszak wasn't upfront about his own professional interests. Because if there was a leak at the Wuhan lab, there would be serious egg on his face. According to the investigative journalist Paul Thacker in the British Medical Journal, or the BMJ, the EcoHealth Alliance got at least $600,000 to support research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That conflict of interest fueled speculation about the lab leak theory. It looked like scientific elites were just covering their asses. In mainstream circles, the lab leak theory mostly faded from public consciousness. In fact, you just didn't hear much of the theory at all, at least until Joe Biden was elected. Suddenly, the political context had shifted, and these questions were safer to ask. The claims of the lab leak people started to gain a bit more traction, and their circumstantial evidence mounted. Evidence about the lab's safety protocols, about internal Chinese warnings, and about the wider history of lab leaks. There had been scientists sounding the alarm on this kind of research for a while. FBI and the Department of Energy both lean lab leak. As for the White House, they are still undecided. So, no consensus, but this is definitely legitimate debate now. Facebook has taken the lab leak out of its COVID-19 misinformation policy. Twitter no longer has such a policy. Fact-checking orgs have amended their previous fact-checks, and journalists are suddenly investigating the theory a lot more. Here's my read of the science. It's just not definitive. Neither side has a smoking gun. Both sides have strong circumstantial evidence. So really the question is about the preponderance of evidence. You probably want me to come down on one side or the other, and honestly, I'm just too ambivalent to do it. But fine, if you put a gun to my head, I probably lean zoonotic transmission there's some recent research that points to evidence that there was raccoon dogs in the market and they mapped on pretty closely to the early cases of COVID-19. I don't see anything quite as robust from the lab leak folks. But they will tell me this evidence is not perfect. It's based on a lot of Chinese CDC data and it importantly contains no smoking gun. They do not have a real animal sample, like they found with other viruses that jumped from animals to humans. Plus, they will remind me, there just hasn't been a credible investigation of the lab itself. And they're right. So there's some major scientific uncertainty here. 
you have people looking at the same set of evidence reaching very different conclusions. For anyone who knows anything about the social studies of science, what I'm about to tell you probably isn't going to surprise you, but this is kind of common. People reach different conclusions about the same evidence because you can't really separate your interpretation of that evidence from your own values. Maybe it's your scientific or methodological values, like if you study biodiversity loss or you study biological security, you are going to arrange the evidence in a different way. There's also financial values. As Upton Sinclair once famously said, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. So you have to ask yourself, what kind of research are scientists funded to do? What kind of ways can they study these problems and what ways can't they? And of course, there are straight up political values. Maybe you're concerned about anti-Asian hate crimes. Maybe you're a China hawk. Maybe you're a kind of populist media figure that rails against scientific and media elites. Or maybe you're a scientist who's worried about those same populists. These are competing people with competing values and competing interpretations. It's true, some of them might be lying to you, but more often, I bet they are honest, just imperfect. And their imperfections lead them towards different conclusions about what the evidence purports to say. Now, I'm not gonna get totally relativistic on you here. There is a truth out there. We just don't have easy access to it. I certainly don't, you don't, not even the beloved Anthony Fauci. All we can do is have serious, open, honest debate. And collectively, hopefully that gets us all a little bit closer. That seems like a super banal thing to say, and it kind of is, but I think a lot of people seem to forget that when it came to the lab leak theory. The theory was clearly marginalized, and I do not think that was helpful. It got us further from the truth, not closer, and it made scientific authorities look less trustworthy not more trustworthy. Today, two-thirds of Americans believe the lab leak is possibly true. On this episode of Darts and Letters, it is time for a reckoning. Not on the lab leak itself, but what the lab leak says about how we communicate science. It's time to look at the politics of so-called misinformation. Who gets to define what's true? I'll ask Jacobin writer Bronco Mercetich. One person's misinformation is another person's fact. That sounds very equivocal. That is, unfortunately, the way of the world. It's, you know, politics is a, as a matter, it's a battle of narratives. Plus, we look at the research behind the idea of misinformation. And we ask, what does it say about the norms of science journalism and science communication? Should we even care so much about misinformation, or are there deeper problems? I'll ask PhD student Nicole M. Krauss. In all of these cases, the assignment of the problem is in the public. That is a continued frustration of science communication researchers who would say that there are other problems possibly more important ones that have to do with institutional realities. All that and more after the break. Hello, dear New Books Network listeners. As you see, Darts and Letters is syndicated on your network. 
So if you're hearing us for the first time, consider subscribing to our podcast. We cover the politics of academia, science, expertise, and intellectual culture. If you like this episode, you will surely like others that we have made. You can find them all at dartsandletters.ca. Subscribe today to never miss an episode. Branko Marsatich is a staff writer at Jacobin. His work looks at a lot of different things, but a good chunk of it coalesces around a few key themes. Media criticism, surveillance, censorship, and misinformation. One of the things I appreciate about Bronco's writing is that he isn't like most people who cover those things. Bronco is just not an internet-brained culture warrior or heterodox contrarian. He always writes in a pretty clear-eyed way with an ideologically consistent left take. So even though he hasn't written a big lab leak piece, I thought he would be the perfect person to act as a guide to thinking through the politics of misinformation and the lab leak hypothesis. What has your general sort of take been on the discourse around the lab leak hypothesis? My general sense is that it's possible that it came out of a lab. It's also possible that it was a zoonotic transfer and that there's not really any sort of um, consensus. So the majority of, of prominent voices uh, have probably mostly been in favor of the zoonotic explanation, but everyone admits that they don't really know. And we may never even know. But there's enough out there to, you know, I think even even the proponents from what I've seen of the zoonotic uh, theory will say that, you know, yes, of course, there's a chance that it came from a lab. For me, what's been the kind of most striking thing about this whole debate and how it relates to this issue of misinformation that we're talking about is that despite the murkiness, we've sort of been presented with this very black and white certain picture from the very beginning where we were told, you know, oh, the idea that it's a lab leak, that's impossible, it's ridiculous, absolutely not. Anyone who says that is a conspiracy theorist, that's disinformation, so on and so on and so forth. And then suddenly, you know, what, three years later, you've got uh, former, you know, public health officials to to find a Congress saying, no, actually, this is entirely possible. And actually, we think that is what happened. Does that mean it's what happened? No, but it shows that it's a far less certain picture than we were initially told. And what it means is that I think it really illustrates vividly the dangers of kind of empowering anyone, even, you know, what we consider authoritative sources, quote unquote, trusted sources, to adjudicate on what is misinformation, what isn't, what is truth and what isn't. The the reality is there is no scientific kind of way of deciding this stuff. One person's misinformation is another person's fact. That sounds very equivocal. That is... Unfortunately, the way of the world, it's, you know, politics is a, as a matter, it's a battle of narratives. It's a battle of interpretations. Why do you think the rush to label it misinformation and sort of tinfoil hat conspiracy? Why did so many mainstream journalists rush to that? And and that was so accepted so uncritically for several years, really. Well, I mean, to begin with, there was that that famous letter that was printed in The Lancet that basically just came out immediately and said, this is completely untrue. And, uh, you know, anyone who says it basically is is spreading misinformation. Of course, we found out later that the person who organized that letter was very much implicated in any possible lab leak. But I think that the fact that sort of came from what was viewed as trusted sources, you know, public health officials, number one, I mean, I think also the fact that we have the figure of Trump, who was very much trying to tie the pandemic into his wider geopolitical conflict that he was stoking with China. And, you know, I think 
as always with Trump, anything he does immediately, these battle lines are drawn and it becomes, you know, you're either backing Trump or you're opposing him and it stops being about the one issue. So I think people start to interpret the issue that way. This lab, if, if the virus did come out of that lab with poor safety procedures, that was done with US funding and very much in partnership with the US. And by the way, that's forgotten now. I think there's people now who talk about who interpret the lab leak purely in terms of, you know, this is part of a stoking of war with China. And I always try and say, well, let's remember it's not just China that's implicated here, it's the US as well, beyond obviously the importance of finding out what caused this terrible catastrophe that changed all our lives. What would you have done? Well, what should have been done in the face of this theory? Because I think while there was no consensus, there were certainly people that were pushing the lab leak theory in the absence of their own evidence, right? I mean, there was a tremendous amount of uncertainty and you can see how something like this can be weaponized. I mean, certainly many scholars said this can contribute to sort of like anti-Asian hate, for instance. I mean, how do you feel about that, that argument? And in general, like, was there dangers with the lab leak theory being advanced in the way that it was? Well, I think the way that it was presented, at least initially, was kind of as a, the idea that this was a bioweapon that China was making, you know, number one. And then number two, the, the way it was presented was kind of with heavy emphasis on the Chinese, you know, the being implicated in, in what was going on, but with very little emphasis on, on the fact that the U.S. as well was. And I think all those things probably combined to kind of definitely push a sort of anti-China atmosphere, particularly, you know, when you have Trump kind of, you know, constantly bashing China and all of emphasize that this is a not a matter of a, a bad guy doing something. It's a matter of basically some of the scientific research that we're doing, is it dangerous? Are we playing with fire? Are we are we trying to play God and potentially we, you know, cause a great disaster? And could this happen again? I would, I would stress it as a issue of public safety and sort of government incompetence that spans countries rather than just being about China. And I think to the extent it was possible, having some sort of, you know, cross-partisan inquiry into what exactly happened, I think, would have been helpful. I, I think the, the fact that this has become such a thing on the right, and it's really, you know, Republicans who end up kind of charging forward with all this, I think has been really unhelpful to in the context of this culture war in the United States. It immediately primes, you know, one third of the population or so to go, oh, I don't have to take this seriously. This is just some stupid right-wing nonsense. But, you know, I mean, that's that's just a few ideas. I mean, there's so many, so many mistakes that have been made throughout this entire thing. I mean, you know, there, there were, I think one of the things that, that people don't talk about now is public health officials like Anthony Fauci also played a role in discrediting themselves, you know, by, by lying about the efficacy of, of masks. And, you know, when I say lie, I'm not using that term lightly. I mean, Fauci admitted later, yeah, he misled people because he was worried that it would lead to a shortage of masks. I think all this stuff helped to create this atmosphere where people start to go, well, hold on, Public health officials are telling us all this stuff, but then later on they take it back. Maybe they maybe they're not to be trusted. Maybe you know maybe none of these people are to be trusted. Maybe <laughs> maybe I shouldn't listen to Joe Rogan or you know some um, crank on Twitter. I think we have to reckon with real public health failings in terms of messaging as well, not just sort of on the, on the, on the rights you know crazy uh, uh, discourse around this. Just back to the lab leak. One of the kind of um, wonders I have is like how much it matters, I guess. And to play somewhat devil's advocate, like, are we becoming sort of anti-expert culture warriors? Because on some level, like the case for increasing the kind of biological security of these labs and ensuring that we have the right sort of regulations in place seems sort of 
yeah, I mean, maybe the lab leak adds more urgency, but I think I would still support it nonetheless. And then also the sort of like zoonotic case that some researchers make that say, okay, we're encroaching upon biodiversity. We have these relationships, uh, close relationships with animals that we didn't have, climate change, uh, factory farming, exacerbating, creating all these sort of petri dishes for zoonotic pandemics. Both things seem to be true regardless of whether or not the lab leak theory is true. So is this just a weird academic debate that we're having or does it matter? You're right. Whether one ends up being true or the other ends up being true, I think we have an understanding that both come with some grave risks and that we should probably change certain practices. But we also know that certain public issues have a way of focusing public attention, debate, and that kind of thing. I mean, things, um, you know, for instance... You think about mass surveillance, right? It's not like that was a new thing when Snowden put out the documents in 2013. There was known that there was a pretty vast surveillance state. Maybe if we, did, if we, we may not have known the exact details, but we knew it existed. And we still do now. But really, I mean, when you think about it, did people talk or, or worry about this stuff um, anymore? Not really. It doesn't mean that they don't think it's important, but it happened to be in 2013 because of this massive avalanche of news, this huge bombshell it had a way of galvanizing public debate. And so I think for that reason, it's important. I don't know if we're going to have the debate that we need to have if this doesn't, uh, and, and ideally the changes that need to, to happen, the kind of reforms we need to put in to prevent you know, any sort of future disaster from happening uh, of this kind again without you know, really having some sort of better idea um, where it comes from. That, that, that's my view. But the thing is, there is no debate because... The entire time, it's the position has been, don't talk about this thing and think about it. This is completely off limits. And if you say it, it isn't, or if you anyway gesture towards it, you know, you're, you're racist or you're a conspiracy theorist or so on, you want more China, so on and so forth. So I think for that reason, I think it is, it's more than an academic debate. I would love for us to just kind of make necessary policy changes just because they're the right thing to do. But, you know, the way that the world works, unfortunately, that's not really how it happens. That makes a lot of sense. I also think that the counterpoint, if um, the lab leak theory turned out to be false, I don't necessarily think it would in any way invalidate the conversations that we should be having about the safety of these labs and the debate about gain of function that has been going on within the scientific community for quite a long time. And it is only now starting to be covered by journalists because it's now legitimate question to ask because the danger of uh, Trumpism is uh, rhetorically isn't there. I wanted to ask you for people that haven't been following the Twitter files, and this touches on a lot on on a few things that we've been talking about because COVID-19 misinformation was sort of part of that, although that wasn't the only thing that the Twitter files looked at. This is another one of those things that's coded as like left-right, like your um, uh, Elon Stan or like a sort of right libertarian, you are very, very worried about the Twitter files and about cancel culture. You're a lefty and it's like you dunk on these people for their weird obsessions. That's not the position you take. For people that don't know you're writing on this, can you tell me a little bit about, well, first of all, what's in there that we that we maybe should care about? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I think that the files, what we've seen of them, show that the government is far more intimately involved in 
Twitter and other social media platforms, but in this case, Twitter specifically, it's decisions around how it does, you know, quote unquote content moderation, i.e. censorship, what posts it takes down, what it considers misinformation, so on and so forth. And not just, you know, the government, which is a very broad label, but the specific parts of the government. And to my mind, it's the parts of the government that some of the most troubling, the worst histories of repression, particularly against the left. The FBI, of course, is, is probably the main one. The FBI's Twitter file show, it's constantly sending Twitter, you know, hundreds and thousands of accounts that it, it, it wants censored. Twitter doesn't act on all of them, but it acts on a substantial amount of them. And you can say that, oh, well, it's not so bad if they don't there and hit every single one but i mean that's easy to say unless you're one of the ones that that does get banned and you know there's many for instance palestinian activists who for years have complained about the way that twitter seemingly targets them disproportionately and censors them we know that definitely has happened on facebook another entity that gets advice from the fbi around what to censor and and you know i mean anyone who's been on twitter for a while you know they'll they'll see examples of arbitrary or inexplicable censorship of left-wing accounts and there's always howls of outrage so i think you know in reality people do realize how important this stuff is and they recognize that it's it's bad it's just you're right i think the way that the debate has been has been carried out has not helped with that i mean some other revelations i'd point to the fact that the dhs the department of homeland security is also involved in this effort you know, the CIA is going to meetings and giving briefings to Twitter. So at some points was the NSA, mm-hmm. which by the way, I mean, the CIA and NSA are not meant to be agencies that work on a domestic front. That's actually illegal for them to do. So there's a real, there's a legal question here as well about whether they can. I mean, a lot of people are fixated on the fact that because this was all given to conservative writers, the conservative writers focused on their particular bugbears, you know, so vaccine criticism or, you know, anti-lockdown stuff and, and the like. But there's also examples of, of left-wing people being censored. I mean, one of the ones that stuck out to me was the FBI flagging what I claimed were kind of Cuban and Venezuelan government bots that were spreading pro-Lula and anti-Bolsonaro hashtags. They saw this as part of some nefarious foreign disinformation project. And Twitter had to be like, well, actually, no, these look like they're just organic accounts. But then you have to ask yourself, well, hold on, why is the FBI even alarmed by or, or, or going after, you know, tweets that are for Lula and against Bolsonaro? Taibi point out that in a list of, I think, 300 some Iranian government accounts, among the things that were listed, there was the Truthout website. Truthout is a left-wing U.S. outlet where many lefty writers have found her over the years. There was a former Chicago Sun-Times journalist and, and others. You know, the, the FBI is constantly pushing Twitter to find evidence of foreign bots, foreign kind of disinformation programs that Twitter privately says... We, there's no evidence of this. We can't find this stuff. But the FBI keeps pushing it. They, they point to pro-Black Lives Matter tweets and they say, this looks like a foreign bot. They post, point to African-American accounts that are for Trump and they say, this must be Russian disinformation. So people say, well, Twitter didn't act in all this stuff. Okay, well, yeah, that's true for now. I mean, point me to a example in recent history, really ever, where you have a national security agency, agencies, who start to get involved in whether it's domestic surveillance or counterinsurgency programs domestically and so on and so forth. And then they, at some point they decide, oh, actually, you know, we've, we've, got, we've done enough. 
we've gone as far as we should and, and now we're taking our hands off and we're, not, we're just going to close this down. No, I mean, historically, they deepen their role, they expand their powers, they broaden their remit. Just because Twitter is, is for now, in some cases, not every case, but in some cases has resisted some of their push, does not mean that that's going to be the case. I mean, all it's going to take is, you know, one or two more kind of dramatic instances of whatever, you know, misinformation leading to some sort of world, real world tragedy, or at least being linked to some real world tragedy to sort of exploit that to deepen their role. And I mean, we know from the Twitter files that that's exactly what the FBI was doing. I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you about, I'm not sure how to put it. I feel like, you know, you and I are both on the same page. We've been talking about kind of what the problem is with the sort of mainstream defensive kind of protect elite institutions framing of misinformation. What's the alternative? What exactly is our vision? Because to be honest, I mean, the problems of misinformation and like profound distrust of expertise, you know, I think that can be healthy, but we know that it's often really unhealthy and a lot of reactionary forces are peddling really dubious information that is leading to people's deaths. We can't minimize that. So I guess if just stamping it out is not the way to address it, what, what, what is the way to address it? I mean, we have to look at how to rebuild public trust in, in institutions. That in itself is a massive undertaking. But I mean, we have to, to begin with, understand why people have lost public trust. And I mentioned some of that stuff, you know, the... The, the the rhetoric from Fauci and others that sort of helped to discredit themselves. But also, I mean, I think this is part of a wider disillusionment with democracy. And it's, I think, comes down to the way that governing institutions, particularly in the U.S., have become dominated by the wealthy and the, the lack of democratic input. I think if you start to chip away at some of that stuff and, you know, doing other things to try and win back public trust, I think you're going to potentially undermine some of the people people's susceptibility to believing misinformation. I think number two, I mean, when we talk about misinformation, I think um, it's misleading because we only focus on the stuff online, which obviously there's lots of misinformation online, of course. But um, the idea that it's most prevalent there, or even that it's most influential, the stuff that we will see on Twitter that's wrong, um, or on Facebook or what have you, it's not borne out by the evidence. Most people don't get their news from Twitter and Facebook, particularly older people. I think that tends to be the crowd that we most think of as being kind of driven into certain kind of conspiracy or right-wing rabbit holes. But actually, most of them get their news from from TV. And I mean, TV, cable news, that stuff in itself is a fountain of misinformation. There's all, I could point to news outlets that I regularly read and, and respect, like the New York Times, and I can tell you there's lots of stuff in there that you would consider misinformation. Although cable news is, is definitely <laughs> an, another order. That is a problem that, that I think is, again, not an easy one to solve, but it comes from you know trying to undo some of these deregulatory actions that were taken in the 90s. Then it comes from trying to get corporate money, corporate influence out of the news. There's a variety of strategies to do that, I think. I think it also pays to keep in mind, yes, absolutely, misinformation is an issue. But, you know, I mean, this is it's not as if it's, it's something new. I mean, yeah. arguably, I would say that 
the internet was far more rife with misinformation a couple of decades ago now there's now it was the wild west now it's a lot more kind of controlled and, and moderated than it was and yet the problem seems worse than ever yeah <laughs> that suggests to me that maybe this stuff is not really you know we should look at root causes not so much why is there misinformation and who's putting it out and what's floating around it why is it that people are drawn to it why is it that people trust someone like joe rogan who says outright I'm an idiot. Don't listen to me. I have no idea what I'm talking about. But they don't want to listen to, you know, Anthony Fauci or other public health experts. It pays to think about that. And, and that's going to require a lot of creative solutions. But I do think among them is, is trying to attack the kind of growing wealth inequality that's left so many people kind of just completely disconnected from politics, completely disconnected from institutions, governing institutions, and try and bring them back into the fold. That was Bronco Marsatich. He is a staff writer at Jacobin and author of Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. You can find his Twitter by clicking the link in our show notes. When I'm not doing this podcast, you may or may not know I'm actually working on a PhD. It's in education, but mostly it's in critical approaches to the public understanding of science which is a really funny field. Let me tell you a little bit about it. One of the top journals is called Public Understanding of Science. It started just over 30 years ago, and in its very first issue, it had some foundational debates. There were people who just didn't even like its very name. They thought the public understanding of science seemed kind of technocratic. And to this day, there are still deep disagreements about basically everything. Like, what do we mean by public? What do we mean by understanding? What do we even mean by science? I guess that's just how academics are. Really, the key tension, the big question that the field asks you is this. Is it your job to make the public dutifully accept what scientists tell them? Do you teach them some fairy tale of a pure capital S science? Or is it your job to be honest about scientific messiness, to be critical of scientific elites, and maybe even to struggle to democratize science? Most scholars take something like the latter position, at least in principle. They say that it's wrong to think of the public as simply deficient of scientific knowledge. Even when they are, that misses what's really important, because the most serious debates about scientific facts aren't really about the facts. They are about the deeper social and political clashes that inform how those facts are read. But here's why the field is also pretty funny. Even though they say all that, this vision of a deficient public that must be educated, it still dominates. There was recently a 30-year retrospective of the journal, and past editors admitted it. They said, we haven't really transcended the very problems identified in our very first issue. So I think it's worth going back to that first issue. Stephen Shapin had an article called why the public ought to understand science in the making. It advocated for an open and honest science communication, quote, warts and all. 
He said that we shouldn't spruce up the house of science before our visitors arrive. We should let our visitors see the messiness because, quote, science has little to hide and if there are things that cannot stand up to informed public scrutiny, then so much the worse for those who insist they be hidden. Are you thinking about the lab leak right now? I certainly was when I reread that line. But then, Shapin ends on a warning. He says that if we try to tell people a kind of noble lie, if we tell the public that scientists are like gods, well, the public is smart enough to find out that that just isn't true. And that's when you have a real problem. Because, according to Shapin, people can get very angry when their gods turn out to be human. Maybe that's where we are right now. People are very angry that their gods turned out to be human. So let's take this as an opportunity to look closer at the field of science communication. What have they warned, and how have they evolved to see the emerging politics of misinformation? For that, I called up one of the field's rising stars. Nicole M. Krauss is a PhD student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She has been writing critical pieces about a lot of the conceptual confusions in the study of misinformation. There are a lot of different people who study misinformation and who have been studying it for a long time. So you could think back to research on propaganda coming out of the world wars and some concerns then about the idea that, oh, people are kind of susceptible to false claims potentially being made by foreign actors, by domestic actors. And so in communication research, there has a lot been a long history of misinformation research that might just define it as something false. But some of this literature also says disinformation is something distinct in the sense that it would be intentionally false. The tricky thing, of course, is that when you start talking about anything being false, you need some kind of evidence base against which to judge the truthhood, I guess, of something. The problem that we have is, okay, what is that evidence base in any given discipline that might be trying to define something as false? In political context, it can be very tricky. Sometimes we don't have access to whatever the truth might be. Maybe it's not something available for public disclosure. You know, it could be something classified. In science context, it may be the case that the scientific evidence base that is being used to define something as false or true is newer or older, or more or less well-established, disputed in some fields, not disputed in others. Uh, so it can become a little bit difficult to start defining what misinformation really is, although people tend to say it's something that was false at the time the claim was made. I pulled out a quote from one of your papers sure. that that's, <laughs> I, I chuckled when I read this. So you wrote, misinformation is becoming a near meaningless catch-all term for, quote, studies focused on the proliferation and impacts of false information with many studies, uh, including some of our own, utilizing oversimplified operal operalizations. I can't ever say that Me word. Me either. <laughs> Glad you said it. <laughs> Operationalizations yes. and offering no definition of misinformation whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So mm -hmm. first of all, so much to, to ask about that. First of all, why? <laughs> why? Uh, well, why wouldn't they define it? But second of all, why might it be important to, to be precise about our definitions? Yeah. So um, <laughs> I did say that in that paper, because it's true that some of even my earlier research with some of my colleagues, especially in some of the work that is coming out more recently, where we're 
trying to identify possible solutions to misinformation. I think in some of this work in particular, there's kind of a, an assumption that the definition is already understood and that, you know, we're looking at interventions at this point because we understand the problem, we understand mm. what it is. And so there'll be a very quick assessment at the beginning of a paper that defines misinformation broadly as just something that was untrue, maybe at the time the claim was made. And then it moves quickly into the methodology of whatever this uh, experimental design might be to kind of test whether the intervention is successful. And so I think for some of these more empirical papers, the attention to the difficulty of the actual conceptualization of misinformation is kind of moved past pretty quickly. So mm -hmm. your answer as to why, I think, I don't know if it's uh, a failure of attention to the complexity on the part of the academic community. That would be a cynical explanation, I suppose. Uh, a more charitable one might be just that in writing a paper of this kind, this is kind of what you do. Is it maybe just that like we don't want to get into an obscure philosophical argument about the nature of truth mm -hmm. because <laughs> we understand it when we see it? Is that something that someone listening to us might retort? Like, why are we becoming these sort of like pedants. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think some of the peer reviewers I have had would suggest that uh, to be true, where at a certain point, we're not very interested in litigating what the truth is and kind of wading into these spaces. I also, I'm not sure this is a sort of intuitive or speculation on my part, but I think there may be some concern that by adding nuance to this conversation or opening ourselves to the possibility that, oh, the truth can be kind of slippery, that it's almost like giving ammunition to some kind of ambiguous enemy, whoever that might be for whoever you're talking to. So it's like, oh, if we give an inch, people will take a mile and say, oh, well, now we can think anything is true. It does seem like sort of some of the most important debates around misinformation, be they about the efficacy of masks or about the origins of COVID-19, are still somewhat open to contestation. I mean, some of those we may not never never know, thinking particularly of the lab leak hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah, th this seems like a case unlike the earth is flat where it's just like not cut out. Like, I mean, as you kind of write in, in your own work, like a lot of this is fast moving and uncertain science where it's not even, it's not even the scientists are saying one thing is true or the other. It's just like a kind of judging of various probabilities based on the most up-to-date theories, right? So, so why, why call it misinformation? Yeah, I agree. I think that we get ourselves into difficult territory defining some of these things as misinformation when they are highly uncertain areas of science. And we know that it's probably going to change or possibly going to change. And so there's a, I think in science communication research context, concern that there's a some unfounded assumptions on the part of public actors in these situations that maybe members of the public will respond negatively to uncertainty or to kind of fuzzier disclosure of the situation, you know, that the, the facts aren't so clearly defined. Mm. Maybe the scientists are still working something out or don't know certain things yet. And that doesn't really stand up well to research in our field a lot of the time, those, some of those assumptions. So I think people would do well to kind of check some of those intuitions about how science communication works mm. and how members of the public do, in fact, respond to, you know, varying levels of certainty in scientific information. And it seems kind of intuitive. Like if you say to me, hey, I'm not really certain. I can't like totally answer your question, Gordon, but here's like my best bet. Mm -hmm. That engenders trust because you're being like honest and humble. Whereas the assumption here 
in some of these sort of mainstream circles is that honesty and that humility is somehow backfires. So I don't know, like, do you know, where does that come from, that, that intuition? So I would say that as with a lot of the intuitions in this space, I think that it's a product of oversimplification of different concepts in the model of what's happening. So on the one hand, in this case, we have uncertainty. And there are many different types of uncertainty already. So you could say, well, how does an uncertainty disclosure of a particular kind affect audiences' perceptions of scientists, right? People concerned that, oh, they'll trust us less if we don't seem to know what we're talking about. Then on that point, we have a potentially failure to recognize that trust is a multifaceted phenomenon. So trust, for example, can be composed of an assessment of a person's competence, but also their integrity. So their honesty, their kind of adherence to particular kinds of norms, for example, of their profession, but also benevolence. Are they a well-intended person who seems to want the best for society, for people other than just themselves? So one of the things that can happen is uncertainty disclosures might maybe make, in some cases, scientists seem less competent. So let's say the uncertainty was the result of some kind of methodological error. You know, oh, there's a these findings for this study, but they're beset by X, Y, Z uncertainty because of these errors the scientists made in data collection. So, okay, well, now maybe you take a hit, I suppose I would say, to some perceptions of competence, like a little bit. But you get gains in integrity, maybe, because you were willing to disclose it. So to your point, there's like it's mixed at best that Mm. these different kinds of uncertainty disclosures uh, are responded to by members of the public and different subdimensions of trust, maybe. And in the end, aggregate trust might actually stay the same or go up because the competence hit was small enough. And as a final point, I guess I would say that if you have to err on the side of like, well, should I disclose or not? I would say that scientists are also already seen as very highly competent as a group of people. So the competence dimension is not necessarily the one I think that scientists need to be concerned about. They should be a little more concerned about the perceptions of their integrity or their warmth or their benevolence, which some subsets of the population, you know, wouldn't necessarily ascribe some of those traits to scientists. On the misinformation front, we've talked a little bit about kind of getting it wrong, I guess. So when we're talking about what is and is not information, misinformation in a fast moving context where there's uncertainty around the evidence. What about it sort of on the political front? This is where I where I feel kind of my back, uh, I get my back up about misinformation because it sort of seems to reinscribe a kind of epistemic hierarchy and authority in the in the role of the scientist and not even necessarily just the scientists but like the most elite sort of scientific policymakers but um what's your thought on that like are there political dangers to kind of this frame yeah i think so there are some kinds of claims again with this point like not all misinformation is created equal i think that is a big takeaway i suppose for anyone listening is that we would be well served to recognize that because we could have more precise conversations then but the f- frame of misinformation for certain kinds of claims that have not just something like scientific uncertainty associated with them as it's the case for covid um, and any claims we might make about it but also geopolitical uncertainty for example in the case of the the lab leak claim, we may never have the data that we need to Mm -hmm. answer that question, Uh, not necessarily for reasons of science, but because of politics. And so I think 
wading into certain kinds of spaces where the claims, the evidence base has uncertainty associated with it of multiple intersecting types, scientific, political, um, that, that is an especially messy area. And it's already messy enough, even when the claims seem fairly clear cut. So I think that there are risks associated with that. I also think that when scientists present themselves publicly as aligned with particular political positions or political actors, there's always this risk of the politicization of science, which can exacerbate polarization problems surrounding science. And for that reason, Mm -hmm. I think it is worth including in the risk-benefit calculus of correcting misinformation or defining things as misinformation, uh, whether the possible political fallout is really worth it. You know, if people continue to hold this false belief, what are we talking about as a possible risk? Depends what it is. You know, again, it's not all the same. People thinking the earth is flat maybe aren't going to be in physical harm (laughs) compared to thinking hydroxychloroquine is safe or that they should drink or not drink, take ivermectin, whatever it's called. Right. I also think that a lot of times things that are pitched as debates about scientific facts are only partly so because, I mean, first of all, we know that science is sort of value laden and political, like from top to bottom. And I don't think that's necessarily a problem. But even when people are talking about like lockdowns, like they may be adjudicating um, purported scientific facts that they get right or they get wrong, but they're also making claims about um, what kind of world they want to live in, what sort of popular sovereignty they desire, uh, what kind of political ideology they have. Maybe they're like, you know, far right libertarians. Maybe they have some sort of like religious conviction for one reason or another. Anyways, all I'm saying here is that it seems like not enough to say, okay, you got the fact wrong, because actually what the most important thing is in this debate over the facts is what they mean, how to interpret them, where to take them, and what society, what kind of society that we want to live in. Yeah. That, that's my big worry about misinformation, because it, it sort of like attempts to shut down that conversation a lot of the times. Yeah, there's a great piece in science, I think it was in science called Was Science on the Ballot? It was Sheila Jasnoff and some other colleagues. And in that commentary piece, I suppose, there was a line that I really love because it mentioned that some of these battles over the facts are actually just proxy battles for disagreements about competing ways of life and value systems. And really, I think they phrased it as as a kind of dissatisfaction on the part of some audiences with what they see as the elevation of science values or values that scientists and experts might hold over their own priorities and competing Mm -hmm. interests. And so I think that came up a lot in the context of COVID-19. I mean, the provision of particular kinds of information in service of recommendations that it the facts at hand would be public health facts, right? We could also be providing data about the possible economic consequences of lockdown as well in service of a different kind of value priority. So I think some of the time there's a particular set of concerns established and then facts mm-hmm. are rendered or provided as argumentation for a particular versions of life that we might want, kind of response strategies that we might want. And it's not that the facts are true or, you know, I'm not disputing whether the tr- facts given in those cases are are false, but the idea is that I think some people 
see this and think, well, we could talk about many other kinds of things. And so they dispute the facts at hand, even if they're not saying like those facts aren't true, but like why those and not some of the other cons- the other ways that we could talk about this. And then we might even have a real chance of like making the case, right? We, right. Like, we, we might even say, actually, yeah, we actually want more public health, but here's why, not because you are misinformed. Okay, let's set aside the kind of like epistemic questions about what is and is not information, a misinformation, and let's stipulate that there is such a thing that exists and we see someone spreading it. Mm-hmm. What are some of the prevailing theories as to what motivates someone to be receptive to it and then to promulgate it themselves? So I think one of the ways to think about what we know about why people might be susceptible to misinformation, if you want to say susceptible, is to think about individual level social level and structural level explanations. So individual level ones being aspects of their psychology, which can be things like their personality traits, which would be more intrinsic and innate to who they are. I think maybe some people are highly dogmatic, for example, or some people say certain people are more prone to magical thinking, for example, and that some of these traits might make it more likely that they would not be interested in accepting claims about the world, including facts that contradict what they already believe or that contradict that thinking style. Others are saying, well, you know, psychologically, everybody has a tendency, depending on the context, to engage in this kind of biased processing of information, motivated reasoning, sometimes we hear it called. And we'll say, you know, if if the issue climate and the way that elite members of society have been talking about something like climate change is such that you as a member of the conservative political parties or the Republicans need to kind of align with your group by saying, you know what, they're talking about it that way. So I should just conform, I suppose, and believe what they are believing so I can stay a good member of my group. That's kind of like an identity protective motivation that people might have and could be kind of social psychological. But Other explanations are less about individuals and more about systemic realities or sometimes failings. As an example here, there's, you know, people talk about realities of our information ecosystem. So you'll hear things Mm -hmm. like everything I said about social psychology intersecting very poorly with the reality of how media algorithms are designed to kind of incentivize us to share or spread really outrageous, emotive kind of evocative content among the same groups Mm -hmm. of people that already agree with us. So those are structural explanations. An interesting one I heard recently was from Carol Graham. I think she's at Brookings. And she points to the, in her data, that individuals who are more susceptible to misinformation tend to also be located in areas of the country that have higher indicators of low well-being. She calls them deaths Mm. of despair, opioid use, suicide. And in her argument, she's saying like, well, this point about information ecosystems is probably part of the explanation, but doesn't explain why we would have systematically different uptake of misinformation in counties of the country that are exceptionally low in well-being in these metrics. And so her argument is like, we could see uh, an explanation for the why of misinformation is kind of lack of hope about Mm. their future, their lives. And we know already in other kinds of outcomes that individuals experiencing that kind of despair will engage in radical behaviors, risk-taking behaviors, drugs. In her argument, she's saying, well, 
radical beliefs are similar outcome of that mm. situation. Therefore, we could improve the well-being of people across the country in some of these areas if we wanted to fight misinformation, which is a very different explanation than saying, okay, there's something wrong with their individual level psychology. They're just innately magical thinkers. That leads me to one of the kind of themes I wanted to, to end on. And I wanted to get people who don't haven't studied science communication, they probably don't know that there are these like different models, right, of like how we think about the public and how we think about the nature of science communication. And, and one of them, one of those sort of long held sort of hobby horses of any sort of critical scholar in science communication is to say, don't think about it as like a knowledge deficit or a public deficit. So in other words, it's not that you have an uneducated public that you kind of open up their their head and then you put facts in, into it and then you are somehow addressing that deficit and therefore now they trust and understand science. There's this sort of shift towards kind of more democratically minded science communication that involves kind of dialogue and things like that. But I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that, like in more particular detail, like what is the knowledge or public deficit? And in your own work, are you seeing that it's still there? Is it something different? Where, where are we at now with sort of prevailing modes of science communication? Yeah, uh, I think you summarized the deficit model pretty well with the opening of the person's brain and putting <laughs> putting the facts in because that that's kind of the idea that, okay, if we see members of the public exhibiting attitudes and beliefs that really aren't well aligned with members of the scientific community, this is an old question, you know, not just since, for example, people saying climate change is not human cause, but we had problems like this for a long time when we put fluoride in water, for example, people concerned about that and forming opinions that maybe didn't reflect what scientists were saying. So old question and an answer tends to be like, oh, we'll just give people the facts. And if they knew the things scientists knew, they would agree with scientists. Like as if the outcome, the, uh, a scientist's opinion is just kind of a nat natural consequence of reasoning that if you just put it in, this, you put the facts in, you would automatically run through the, the function and you would get the output, um, which I think is an oversimplification of how individuals form their opinions, but also an oversimplification of how scientists form their opinions <laughs> as people too. So in any event, that model is old. It's one that a lot of research in science communication as an interdisciplinary area has shown is not necessarily accurate. Typically, people's opinions tend to be informed more by other things like their value systems, their risk perceptions, for example. But as that model of public opinion of science has been challenged, people have kind of been proposing other ones. And the disturbing thing to your question about whether it continues to appear is that it does. Uh, this deficit model just kind of transforms. Some of my colleagues in, at UW-Madison have referred to it as kind of the zombie of science communication because it just keeps mm. coming back in these different forms. But an example being, you know, we moved from saying that members of the public just need more facts to saying now we have a trust deficit. The problem with the public is now this, it's that they don't trust scientists enough as producers of facts. So there's challenges to the legitimacy of their epistemology. And then from there, it's like, well, okay, they don't have the, they have facts. They just have the wrong ones. They have alternative facts or inaccurate facts. And this is where we see these discussions of misinformation. I would put those conversations there where, well, if we are concerned that the 
American public, for example, is split on something like mask mm. wearing, then a quick response to be like, well, what is going on with public opinion of science to be like, well, they have the wrong facts. There's a deficit of some kind with members of the public. In all of these cases, the assignment of the problem is in the public. It's the thing with all of these models of the deficits, like whatever the deficit is, they all share their locus, I guess, in people's minds. And that is a continued frustration of science communication researchers and researchers in science and technology studies, other fields, who would say that there are other problems, possibly more important ones that have to do with institutional realities incentive structures within science itself, communication by members of the scientific community or their representatives, systemic failings like the one I was just talking about, where some of these problems may have more to do with well-being. Or, But the discussion of public deficits ends up at putting us in this place of putting so much accountability on individual people for the beliefs that they form. That was Nicole M. Krauss, PhD student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I will link to a couple of her most relevant pieces in our show notes. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. If you like what you heard, consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. We are created by Cited Media, and we are produced today by Jay Coburn, Ren Bangard, and me, Gordon Caddick. As always, our theme song and outro was composed by Mike Barber, and our graphic designs are by Dakota Coop. This episode received support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. It's part of our ongoing mini-series that looks at the politics of medicine and medical controversies. The scholarly leads are Professors Maya Goldenberg at the University of Guelph and Maxwell J. Smith at the University of Western Ontario. They provide consulting to the series, and our research assistant is Yoshi Miyasaka at the University of Guelph. Thanks for listening. Till next time.